So today we have Matthew Hunter joining us, and I'm glad to have him on. He is a wilderness survival expert, uh, has been teaching this for a long time. He's also a plant expert, uh, particularly in foraging uh, edible plants, and has a wealth of knowledge. Currently lives in Arizona, uh, runs his own wilderness academy, and he's a fantastic survival instructor and really glad to have him on here. Uh, originally from Texas, the South, and has such a broad range of knowledge. So thank you very much for joining us, Matthew. Thanks for having me, Lee. Well, uh, just to start off with, how about you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got into this. I think that's the most exciting thing. I think when people see this, sometimes they look at, well, I want to be a wilderness survival guy. It sounds like a fantastic life. You know, did you kind of grow up eating grub worms or, you know, just how did this all come about? Yeah, it's so funny because I didn't grow up doing this stuff uh, at all. I mean, I grew up, you know, uh, just like most millennials watching TV, playing video games and not going outside as much as I should. Uh, but something something hit me uh, probably like around my senior year of high school. I got the bug and I just for some something, I don't know what it was, uh, but I wanted to go and like experience the remote wilderness and actually uh, live in the wilderness uh, for a time. And so, um, I don't know, for some reason, I just, I just got this fascination of, you know, wanting to sort of experience like the mountain man uh, lifestyle, uh, which I found out wasn't nearly as fun as I thought it would be. But uh, I did end up doing that. And uh, you so have I, that look. You do look like Jeremiah Johnson. If you've yeah, seen the yeah. So well, you should have seen me back then. I was, you know, clean shaven and, 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 uh, and um, you know, 17 long hair. I was, I was. A different person back then <laughs> but the first thing I started learning was the plants because I figured you know anyone who wants to live off the land has to learn the plants and uh, funny enough the reason I started learning plants was because I figured that would be the most boring and difficult skill to learn and so I figured I better start doing that first because it'll take me so long to learn all the plants and uh, well sure enough once I started learning them curiosity just took over and uh, I started learning all these different things that that Native Americans were doing to to uh, live and the plants they were eating and all the different uses of the plants and so that actually ended up becoming sort of my main area of study uh, learning the uh, plants but uh, uh yeah this, so my this, was, happy... this, this was in Texas yeah so this was in East Texas originally and uh, I was preparing for a trip to go up to to Montana so the Bitterroot um uh, mountains in Montana, Idaho border. Uh, and, uh, so I ended up going up there for six months, but yeah. Yeah. So oh, wow. I have a business called legacy wilderness Academy and I teach about wilderness survival and edible plants. So it's been, uh, over 10 years of doing this now. Did you actually live in the Bitterroots then? Yeah. Yeah. When I lived in the Bitterroots for about six months and, uh, you know, not just purely right off the land. We, we were in a tent for, of that time, uh, let's see. Well, we were in like a little hunting sort of camper for a few months in the in the national forest, and then we moved uh, to a tent. And then so we were like really way out there for for like it, you know, at least a good month of just like you know deep remote wilderness, and that's sort of where it all started. And uh, yeah, I've been that, traveling and doing stuff ever since. That must have been an incredible learning experience. What was that like? And if you have a couple of stories, you know, what did you face and stare down a grizzly or, you know, get caught in a blizzard or yeah, that just sounds fascinating. 
Yeah. Well, it's definitely not as fun as every you know, as you would think. It's a, you know, it's a lot of just boring days and um, being out in the woods, it, you know, it has this sort of a, you have this sort of romantic idea of what it's going to be like. And then you get out there and you're like, you're, you know, oh, this isn't, this isn't nearly as much fun. Uh, but, it, you know, I did get to eat a lot of uh, plants out there. Uh, I had been studying the plants of that region um, for, you know, months and months prior to going. And I had, you know, I was, uh, I think, 17. No, I was, I was uh, 19 working at a Sonic and saving every paycheck to buy guns and ammo and, and wilderness survival gear. So I was really equipped when I got there. And then when, when we finally got there, you know, it was a lot of fun, it, you know, building my first shelter. And we were, um, we were shooting stuff. We were shooting anything that moved. We were shooting, you know, I had never hunted it a day in my life. Uh, so I was shooting, you know, squirrels and little birds and uh, <laughs> just eating anything we could. And, you know, so I learned how to skin, skin a deer uh, when I was there and and all kinds of stuff it you know we were trying to put up these these shelters that just were ended up you know horrible shelters looking back uh but we, we got a lot of stuff done and we ended up leaving feeling like you know feeling like men and uh it was a good experience you know i learned a lot and i learned you know uh met a lot of the local people out there and that's really that's really the best part of montana and idaho is the people uh you know those country rural folk uh, i like to say montana is like the texas of the north uh, because, you know, the, the people there remind me a lot of, of good old, you know, uh, rural Texans. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it was, a, it was a good trip. Yeah. Yeah. Learning by trial and error, right? That, that sounds a lot like, um, except it sounds like you were more prepared than the, uh, if you read the book or the movie Into the Wild, the Alexander Supertramp guy. So I'm glad oh, you yeah. made it out. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, well I sort of can relate to him as much as people give him crap for going out there and doing what he did. I sort of understand it because I could have been, I could have been him in a way. I think he was a little bit, a little bit further than I was and on sort of the romantic idea of the wilderness, but I definitely can relate to how, you know, you can think that the wilderness is, is uh, just this beautiful, wonderful place and then forget that it's also a, a deadly place. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Well, I think that's a great segue because, you know, our, our country in terms of our European ancestry, obviously Native Americans were here for a lot longer, but was founded on that pioneer spirit. And so one of the things that um, maybe you could speak a little more about is, and I, and I know you do this when you're teaching, this difference between primitive living or pioneer living. And you know we see a lot when people discuss uh, survival about bushcraft contrasting that with wilderness survival and particularly modern wilderness survival. Can you share your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, one of the first things is that, you know, Native Americans were not, um, you know, for the, for the most part, they weren't really doing survival skills. So they were living in the woods, uh, in the wilderness full time. And so, you know, a lot of the uh, sort of, you know, I sort of had this idea when I first started survival like I would like to be able to survive, like what if I had like nothing on me and I had to survive like completely primitively with only what I could find in the wilderness, you know, like stone tools and, and uh, sticks and, and, you know, how would, how would I go about that? And uh, I think that's the wrong place to start with wilderness survival. Um, 
because when you look at this, those types of skills that the Native Americans were doing, you know, the main thing that makes it different is they didn't have, you know, for the most part, didn't have metalworking. So they were using bone, uh, stone, and wood. But um, I think we don't a lot of times give Native Americans enough credit for the, um, we call them primitive skills. Uh, but in reality, we only say that because they didn't have metal. We don't, it, it wasn't really that they were primitive at all. I've never liked that term. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the technology we say was primitive, but in reality, it was, it was very advanced. I mean, these people were, you know, artisans, if that's the word I could use. Uh, they, you know, they weren't just unprepared and just manufacturing things out of the bush, um, you know, sort of as they needed it. I mean, these people had, you know, complex systems and, you know, it, well, I mean, I could go on and on, but you know, like for example, if you want to make rope, you don't just go out in the woods and just make rope whenever you need it. You have a certain tree that you wait till a very specific time of year, you harvest it in large amounts. So we're talking about, you know, whole systems. You don't just go and make a primitive bow. You, you know, you uh, pick the right tree um, that maybe you even traveled miles and miles to get, or maybe you traded it. You let it, you know, you have to let the stave dry for a year. And then you spend, you know, hours and hours making it just perfect. And so, so there's this idea that sort of the Native American, like primitive skills, which are really cool, but not, not great for a beginner who really wants to have like practical knowledge, you know, out in the woods. Uh, and then yeah, because, the I'm sorry, because they take a long time to master. I mean, just when I've done yeah. them, you know, it's, it's not something, and some of them particularly, obviously like flint napping is uh, some people pick that up more quickly than others, but that is not an easy skill. I, I remember, a site here, just north of here, a really old Native American site called the Galt site, and they found these points that just have all these design features that um, the archaeologist there calls them show-off points because they made the point weaker, but they're beautiful, right? I mean, they really were artisans, but really difficult to have these fine little indentations. Um, yeah. and, and I know you've told me too about, you know, having these long ropes, you know, uh, really long nets they created for, you know, capturing rabbits and, you know, and, and all this things they did in tandem. So yeah, it really was sophisticated, not at all primitive. Very sophisticated. Regard. And, and all that to say is that if you want to learn survival skills, don't start by learning Native American, what's called Native American survival skills, because you'll get a headache and it'll be way too difficult for you to master. And so that's the sort of the ending goal. If you want to get into that, into that lifestyle of there's, there's, there's still people today who will go out on these primitive trips with only, you know, um, buckskin clothing. Like, I mean, I've seen these groups of people who like, they have a rule. You can only bring what you've manufactured, you know, from the wilderness primitively, um, or, you know, primitively. Right. Um, and that's, that, those are really cool skills, but I wouldn't call them survival skills in the modern sense. So um, where we actually get survival from is, is really different. Like survival in the past 100 years has evolved into something completely different from anything we've ever had before, you know? Yeah. Uh, talk, talk a little more about that. Where did that, if I remember correctly, you make sort of uh, a couple of differentiation so there's primitive living and then 150 years ago whatever time frame not 
exact, but pioneer living, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you, you know, you might've had a musket or something, but you're still living out there like Jeremiah Johnson, you know, and right. it's hardcore. You, you can't count on modern conveniences or supplies. Uh, certainly not, or at least not for a long period of time. You might go several months. And then modern wilderness survival. So how did that last category come about and, and again, makes it different from the other two? Yeah, so, well, your, your sort of pioneer skills are closer to the modern wilderness survival skills. And, and with all three of those categories, there's a lot of overlap. So it's not that we don't use any Native American knowledge or we don't use any pioneer knowledge, but where wilderness survival came from today, uh, it's, well, I would argue it's a direct result of warfare, largely. Um, now, you do have civilian things, sports like mountaineering, you know, uh, uh, skiing, right, cross-country skiing, and, and uh, these types of, you know, dog sledding, sports that people still do, and they still need those survival skills. So you do have some civilians contributing to our body of modern survival knowledge. But largely, I would argue that it's a direct result of warfare. So the very first survival school in the United States um, was in, I think, Carson, Colorado. It, it uh, moved to Stead Air Force Base in Nevada pretty early on. So that's like early 1950s. You have the very first survival school. And that's not to say that we didn't have other types of training. Like we didn't, you know, we had, you know, uh, Arctic training schools and things like that. So there were other sort of survival type schools, but the very first, you know, um, real survival school where that was their goal. Um, Like I said, early on, they moved to Stead Air Force Base, uh, which I think is today even still known for their SEER school. And, you know, um, and so it was the Air Force. So it was the, at that time, you know, the Air Force was still a department of the army. And so the purpose of um, the survival school uh, really probably had, you know, two major groups of people that they were concerned with. Um, The main group was pilots. So the original survival knowledge we have today um, originated with pilots. So what they found in, you know, World War II uh, was that a lot of pilots were, were going down in their plane and we're still, we're actually surviving the crash. And then they were dying from the elements uh, after, after the initial crash. Okay, so you gotta think pilots, very, very valuable people uh, you know, in World War II, right? We need pilots, um, you lose good pilots, you have a bunch of- Lots of training you know, involved there. Right, lots yeah. of training involved and you don't wanna have rookie pilots fighting you know, the, other, the other side with with, uh, you know, veteran pilots. So they're no match. So they really, you know, pilots are valuable, uh, very valuable assets to the military, as you can imagine. And uh, so, so the very first school was actually, um, you know, really made for pilots. And the goal was to teach pilots how to survive in Arctic conditions, desert conditions, and, you know, jungle conditions. And then the second group of people really concerned with was um, people in the Navy. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, sea survivors, right? Your ship goes down and you have all of these people, you know, hundreds or, you know, maybe even thousands of people who are dying at sea. And so the next question was, what do you do whenever you're at, like, how do you, um, you know, how do you survive at sea? And so we get, a, we get uh, books sort of like this, United States 
Air Force uh, Search and Rescue Survival. And so understanding where survival actually came from, it starts to make a lot more sense. Like, you know, why, like why in a survival book am I reading about which fish are poisonous? Like that's, that's a really strange, you know, cause in, you know, in the, in the U S we don't have any like really poisonous fish that I know of maybe like one or two, but you know, you're like, how, I don't understand why it's like such strange topics they choose to cover in these survival manuals. But when you look at like where that information came from, you know, people were, uh, were getting poisoned by fish in the Pacific because there's more poisonous fish out there. So they're, they're catching fish off their life raft and getting poisoned. And, you know, uh, you see like how to, you know, how to uh, use a parachute as a shelter. And you're like, how is this practical? Like who has a parachute? You're like, oh, that's because this information came from the military originally. And so Stead Air Force Base, um, what became a, um, a central point where all of the survival information could sort of flow to. And so they started interviewing pilots and uh, interviewing people who survived um, you know, sea, uh, sea incidents and asking them, you know, what, you know, what did you do? What did you do wrong? How did people die? And they started compiling all this information. And, um, and along with that, with other things too, you know, with the cold war era, um, the United States was just in a perpetual state of anxiety, you know, getting ready for an another potential war. And so that's when a lot of, um, money became available for research. And so for example, the what's called the golden age of frostbite research was in like the 50s and 60s, um, where you know you're learning all about the human body, you're getting these new insights. I think it was in like the 50s and 60s where the um, the protocol for actually treating frostbite, you know, changed after you know hundreds of years of people doing one thing, they changed and say, oh, actually that's that was not effective. We're gonna start treating frostbite this way, you know? And so they start actually, you know, doing these scientific studies, learning about the human body and having this central point um, where all the survival information can sort of flow to. And you have people who, you know, at the instructors and it's their full-time job to, to come up with new survival methods and to compile this information and to, you know, make something with it. And so, uh, and so largely warfare and even back in World War II, you know, research and study different types of studies that were done, which I talk about in my course. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great answer. Thank you. I actually have a family connection on that. My uncle was a POW shot down in Korea wow. and uh, nearly froze to death. And unfortunately he got cat. Well, maybe it was a good thing actually in the end, but he got captured right away. So the evasion part of series survival evasion, uh, uh, resistance escape he didn't get too far past the second letter but um yeah they tried to freeze him to death on a couple occasions and actually he learned a lot and he's told me a lot of these stories and i can see exactly what you're talking about in fact a, a jack london book he kind of credits the saving his life in terms of he was recognizing one night he was about to freeze to death and started yeah. exercising so that's uh, makes a lot of sense yeah uh, yeah when you think of korea battle of chosen reservoir where, you know, you have this huge amount of frostbite casualties and, and people dying from the cold. And then that spurs research. Because now the government is like, oh, we need to start researching how to prevent this. And so, you know, the information that was uh, originated with government research, we're still using today. So uh, that's actually a great 
entree into the next topic, which is if that's how modern survival came about and, you know, we learned all these techniques, um, fortunately we're not in major wars today. Um, and so, but we do have people who get into survival situations, obviously, uh, a lot of it, maybe almost all of it, uh, recreationally, not all of it, but what are the main causes? I know you've done a lot of research on this, uh, you know, today when people get in these situations, what, what typically leads to those? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. And so, you know, the first, uh, for thing you'll find when you start researching survival situations, you know, how people have died in the wilderness or near death experiences. One of the interesting things is that um, there's like a striking uh, uh, resemblance between different situations. I mean, it could have happened at different parts of the world and the people were doing completely different activities. You know, one's mountain climbing, one's, uh, you know, uh, boating or, you know, whatever. Uh, and, you know, but if you really look at like, how did, you know, what were the, the uh, things that, you know, the five different things the person did wrong and you sort of boil it all down, um, there is a, a really striking resemblance between all these different situations where you can sort of boil it all down to like a list. I, and that's what I've done with my course. You know, I have a list of like 15 or so um, mistakes. And what I teach my students, if I could sum it all up in one sentence, it would be, um, not being prepared. So not preparing beforehand to be in the wilderness. And so a lot of what kills people, like for example, even uh, in the Phoenix area where I'm at, every year people die from heat stroke. And so one of the biggest things is, um, well, it's what I call the day hiker mentality. It's the idea that, you know, I'm only going out for the day. And so I'm only going to prepare for the, for the four hour hike I'm planning on going on and nothing more. And, uh, so ultimately, oh, sorry, I got an alarm going off. So ultimately it boils down to that. So like, for example, here in Phoenix, uh, people don't realize that, you know, you would think like you, you know, you see like a movie uh, where they're dying in the desert and they're running out of water slowly. And, you know, uh, well, in reality, um, most, actually almost all of the people that die here in Phoenix from the heat, um, they don't die from dehydration. They actually die from heat stroke. So it is, you know, sort of related to dehydration, but they're not like running out of water and sitting under a tree and slowly wasting away. It usually happens a lot quicker than that. Most of the people uh, last year who died out in the desert, actually all of the ones I saw reported by the news, um, they died within one day. So they died on a, on a day hike and, and died from heat stroke within one day. Um, you know, so I'm talking about a few hours, like they just go out for a hike, think they're going to be back at their car in a few hours. And, you know, they uh, either get lost a little bit turned around, they forget, you know, they didn't bring water. Um, and it's actually amazing how fast people um, can die in the wilderness, you know, just about anywhere. Um, but largely, you know, it's a lack of preparedness, right? That's why the Boy Scout motto is be prepared, because it's it really is simple. But I think, you know, a lot of people sort of, uh, fantasize survival and sort of have this idea of, you know, what it's, you know, the, what it's going to be like when in reality, um, sometimes it's, you know, survival skills and wilderness comfort is something as simple as, you know, wear, wear a pair, wear pants instead of shorts. So the mosquitoes don't tear your legs up all night or you know, something as simple as that, you know, Hey, uh, tell someone where you're going to be, bring a compass. Uh, a lot of times it's more simple. Now there, you know, that's not to say that 
learning survival is always simple like that. But some of the, um, you know, some of the things that are going to kill you, you really don't even have to learn any fancy skills. You just have to learn what not to do. So a lot of my job as a survival instructor is, is telling people uh, what not to do, you know, so how to prepare and how to uh, not get yourself in a crazy situation to begin with. And I think that's a great point because, uh, again, contrasting with primitive living, the idea of primitive living and, you know, and I've been out and done some, not as long as you have, but gone out for extended periods of time. And it's really enjoyable. It's like, if you have everything right, you know, it's like, Hey, I'd like to stay out here, but that's very different from a survival situation. And I think you point this out really well when you're teaching in that it's usually going to be a short duration one way or the other, you know, you're either going to make it out. Um, however you make it out. And we'll talk about that more in a minute or you're not, but it's really about being prepared, not, not to live there, but having the things with you um, and doing your homework so that, you know, you can make it through this next really cold night, right? Um, and, you know, or, or find some water, like you were talking about people, you know, out in Arizona, where obviously it's very hot in the summer. Uh, and so I, I think that's, again, that was kind of an eye opener for me, you know, just from a contextual standpoint, way of looking at things. It's very different from, like you said, this kind of glorious, you know, well, I'm going to turn into a Native American and, you know, catch a buffalo and, yeah. <laughs> you know, put them on a split and, you know, kick back in my hammock. And, you know, that's that's not really what we mean by survival situations, is it? No. Yeah. And I think a lot of survival training is sort of geared, um, in my opinion, sort of in the wrong way. Uh, it's sort of geared for what people want and not for what people need. Mm. So if you were to go on YouTube right now and see and type in wilderness survival and see like all the top videos that have millions of views, it's mostly people like living in the wood, like, you know, doing like how to build this crazy big shelter out of nothing and, and stuff like that because that's what we want. That's what we think about. And that's what we really want deep down. Uh, but you know, if I'm going to train someone to, to do like wilderness survival, like if you were going shipped off to a war zone tomorrow and I could teach you, you know, and I had like a weekend with you to teach you wilderness survival skills, I wouldn't be teaching you how to trap animals and, you know, primitively or how to build, maybe I might teach you how to build a shelter, but more realistically, I'd probably teach you how to tie a few knots so you could set up a tarp. Um, you know, a lot of people want to learn these these sort of primitive skills, but I think those real survival skills are um, they're a lot more um, surprisingly academic. Like there's quite a bit you can learn scientifically about wilderness survival, but it's definitely not as like it's not as fun. You know, it's not as fun. And that's one of the problems I'm having even selling my course is that, um, you know, I'm I'm trying to give people what they need. Um, but what, not what they want. So what people want is entertainment is entertaining. What I'm trying to give them is not necessarily entertaining. It's not really fun to learn how to like navigate with the map and compass. It's actually like kind of like learning math. Like you don't really want to do it. Um, it's, you know, learning like how to, how to prevent frostbite and hypothermia isn't really fun. It's not like, oh yeah, that's going to be awesome. Let me watch a video on how to, on like how the body responds to the cold. You know, it's not really fun. It's more like, it's, it's like, you know, you should do it to be responsible. And so I'm actually, I'm even having trouble. Uh, I wouldn't well, say I'm having trouble selling my course. I'm having trouble positioning it to, you know, because I don't want to be dishonest and be like, you're going to 
be a yeah. master at living. Well, in the I world. actually, I actually, I love navigating, but that's kind of, you know, I think it's interesting, but anyway, well, actually uh, just getting into a few specifics here, how hard is it to prepare? I mean, just, you know, taking a few things, maybe you're not going to become a master, you know, in orienteering or navigating, but you know, being able to pack the right things, whether it's a day pack or a backpack trip, because I, I find personally, and I've done, you know, a lot of backcountry backpacking, just having a few key tips, like you said, about knots or, you know, knowing how to, you know, some basic ideas about repairs or dealing with this situation, it's incredibly valuable. And so are there things people can learn fairly quickly, you know, to prepare themselves? Or I know you've done a lot of work on, you know, being able to tell people and even, you know, for me, I was a little astounded about, you know, when you're out in a desert environment, how fast you can lose water. And particularly if you're carrying weight or, you know, you can really run into some problems very quickly. Um, but are there some things you can do to help offset that and, you know, that are practical and, you know, someone can learn or, or prepare, you know, fairly quickly? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you can learn, you know, some of the most important survival skills um, really quickly uh, because, like I said, it's mostly learning what not to do in a lot of ways. Um, but it's really not learning it. It's the discipline of actually doing it. Um, and so what I, what I tell my students is, you know, I could teach you how to put on a seatbelt in, you know, 30 seconds. I could explain what it's for. I could tell you the statistics of why you should do it. But if you don't do it every single time, it's not going to really be worth anything to you. So it's not just learning. I, you know, and sometimes it's I have to really stress some of these the points to my students because I feel like it's so simple. It's like, oh, I already know that, you know, wear your seat, but oh, I already know that. Um, and it's so easy to just be like, well, that's easy, of course. But it's another thing altogether to actually do it every time. So that's what takes the discipline. It's, you know, hey, how do you not get a flat tire when you're out way out in the desert? Well, you have to check your the air pressure in your tires. You have to check the tread. You may even have to pay a few hundred dollars to get a couple of your tires replaced. And so that's the discipline aspect of it. And it's also, you know, putting all of that together. Uh, I could teach you how to read a map, but if you didn't print one out for your area, you didn't take the 30 minutes to find one, print one out, or you didn't even look at it before you left, or you just, you have a compass, but you left it in your backpack. And when you got out of your car and started hiking, you didn't even look at it. It, so a lot of it's really simple. You can learn it relatively quickly, but I think it's the, um, the ingraining it into the back of your mind where you always do it without thinking. That's the real, you know, survival uh, knowledge. So I, some of it can be pretty simple, but, but it's another thing altogether to actually do it every time. I think that's a great point. And I mean, I should know better, but I've made that mistake before. I, I think something that goes along with that is that people, uh, particularly if they know an area or, uh, or maybe they know it a little bit, or they've had experience there before and everything went right. Just assuming that the next time they go out, um, particularly in an area like the mountains where things can change very quickly, you know, with the weather, that's going to be just like that again. And I think they get complacent, you know, eh, I don't need the compass or what I, I personally, one time was in the Sierras and uh, it was right about uh, this time of year, a few weeks later, early October, but when the weather can start changing out there. Normally, October's pretty nice. Um, and so we went in, showed up, I was with a buddy of mine and got to the gate and it was cold. I mean, we're at only like 4,500 feet and, you know, it's like 45 degrees. 
And I asked a ranger, he goes, yeah, we don't usually get this till Thanksgiving. And so that, that was a, that should have been a light bulb moment. And we get in camp, you know, the campground the first night, we're going in for like two weeks and uh, we go in the first night and I, I had a tent, one of these that has a tarp on the bottom. But if you want to save wakes, we were going in a long time. You can just take the fly with the tarp. And, you know, we went in about, I don't know, probably eight miles first day camped and I tell you what, it was so cold that night and we were only at, you know, six to 7,000 feet. We're going up to 13. And, um, <clears throat> my friend, he, he's a pretty tough guy. He wanted to keep going. I was like, Nope, no way. I went six miles that morning, ran down to the car, got the rest of my tent, ran back up, made really good time, got back in about three hours and continued. And, you know, I was very tired that day, but thank goodness it did that because I tell you what, we got up. I mean, it was bitterly cold, you know, up in the top and we would have, we would have had a real problem and it just would have been stupidity. Yeah. It just would have been a dumb mistake. So and that, I, I that actually really described most survival situations in the United States. It's not this, you know, extended ordeal where it's this, uh, you know, fight for your life and uh, well, it is fighting for your life, but it's not this, you know, um, oh, I, I need to trap a, a raccoon to, to survive and build this, this fancy shelter. Sometimes I guess, you know, shelter building comes in and, and I'm not saying, I'm not, you know, it's important to learn that stuff, but um, it's, it's much more mundane. It's much more everyday stuff, situ situations. It's, it's a lot more simple. You know, it's something as simple as, hey, if you would have brought an extra hat, a jacket, maybe a, maybe a sleeping pad, Thickened, thickened up your um, your bag a little bit, you know, maybe brought a little bit heavier sleeping bag, you would have been all good. Whereas if you didn't turn around and go get your stuff, you could have got into a serious, you know, situation. Uh, and and I think a lot of survival situations are, are um, you know, fall into that category more than people want to admit. Yeah. And I, uh, for people listening, I, I know that you know so much about this and you you uh, said this earlier, it really is a crossover between the traditional skills and modern because, you know, Native Americans might not have been able to tell you about conduction or convection, but they sure knew about it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, scientifically, they may not have been able to do the math on or whatever, and they would have said, no, don't, you're not going to sleep on a rock, you know, at yeah. night when it's cold, you know, you're going to have to get off that ground, get some insulation. And I think you do a really good job explaining the science, you know, in a modern framework, and how important that is, because if you understand those things and you find yourself, hopefully not, but you find yourself in one of those situations or just for comfort, you know, and the story I mentioned a while ago, you can make some really good decisions that can either keep you from getting in trouble, right? Or, you know, if you do get in trouble, something happens, can keep you alive until you can get out. Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And, and a lot of it is um, comfort. So, you know, a lot of people think of survival skills that they are sort of like a, um, like insurance, you know, like, oh, that's it. That's I'm going to take a survival course for the one in a million chance that I get into a survival situation. And uh, that's just really not how, you know, how I teach. I teach from a very practical standpoint. So whenever you take the my survival course, you're not just going to learn, you know, what to do in that one in a million, uh, you know, chance. But it's made to make you more comfortable because at the end of the day, that's what survival is. Survival is staying comfortable versus being cold or being, you know, dehydrated or being hot or whatever. And so a lot of it really, you know, for people who do want to live in the woods, um, 
you know, learning the actual wilderness survival is like a prerequisite. So I, I you know, I love it when people want to learn primitive skills and the wilderness living and how to build a, a you know, use an axe and, and build a cool shelter. And that's all, you know, really fun, awesome skills. But the prerequisite to all of that is the, is the more basic, you know, survival skills. And yeah, if you do find yourself in a bad situation and your comfort level, you know, the cold's taking it out of you, you're dehydrated. Uh, obviously, you know, you're probably gonna be limited on food. Insects are bothering you. That brings your whole system down. And I, I've heard you talk about more stressors and, you know, that lessens your survival chances if things get really bad. Um, just a few things in particular. Uh, and I think a lot of people know this who are experienced circuit like in the mountains, but clothing is really important, right? And is, is that yeah. something people overlook a lot of times or don't take the right things? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I more than overlook, I think it's just completely, uh, uh, just absolutely ignored. Um, no, people, people in the North are a little bit better, you know, they know they, they grew up learning to dress in layers and to, uh, you know, have your little base layer and to maybe even wear a hat and a scarf and, and things like that. Um, uh, but you know, a lot of people who like for, you know, you and me, I don't know where you, did you grow up in Texas? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so Texans, uh, I was watching King of the Hill last night and on one of the episodes, it started snowing and, and they said, the people of Arland are not prepared for this. We, you know, they don't know what to do. And this is whole thing, you know, this whole thing about getting propane to the people. And, uh, you know, um, I love that show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so that's, it, it's very much like that. It's that like we Texans, we don't know what to do when it gets cold. Uh, and well, you know, all jokes aside though, you know, you did see that. Uh, what was it? Two, two winters ago. I was um, here. I lived through it. I lost power. It was, uh, yeah, it was the winter of, um, 2021. And, yeah. um, you know, when it started coming on, I, I did some basic things and, you know, I knew the pipes going to freeze, filled my bathtubs up. And then I kind of had fun with it. I, I think I told you this, I went and made a snow shelter and stayed in it one night, but I mean, yeah. it, it was some people were really struggling and, you know, the communities were not at all. And obviously the power grid wasn't set up uh, to deal with that. And so, you know, fortunately, I think if it had lasted much longer, it would have started being a real problem, uh, yeah. you know, but, uh, but anyway, it, it certainly wasn't comfortable for a lot of people and, and a lot of people didn't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have people dying in their own home. It's really sad, you know, and I, I felt, you know, helpless, uh, over here in Arizona and being from Texas, it kind of hit me like, man, I could actually be helping people out there. Um, you know, but it's, you know, people are dying in their own home when it's, you know, what, 30 degrees outside or something like that. Uh, and, you know, people have, have lived at, you know, over a hundred degrees lower than that, you know, Arctic explorers and stuff like that have been out in, you know, a hundred degrees lower than that. Um, you know, at, uh, at like 70 below, uh, and been able to survive. So, you know, it definitely, you know, having the survival skills, knowing what to wear. And we're, I think we're about to see that again, Lee, uh, at least that's what people are saying in Europe right now, because of all of the, uh, the shortages on uh, natural gas. Um, and a lot of people are thinking that when winter comes around, there's going to be people who, uh, you know, are going to be needing, um, you know, needing heat and not having it. So that's kind of scary. Uh, but, you know, yeah, clothing is definitely a major, major factor on, and there's literally whole books that have been written about clothing. 
and uh, some that are even too advanced for me to uh, understand, you know, science, like engineers writing like the science of clothing. And there's a lot of things in the modern day that uh, the technology just came out in studies that people neglect, but definitely here, even in the desert, you know, uh, people don't realize you need to wear long clothes instead of shorts and a t-shirt. And that's actually going to help you um, stay protected from the sun. So yeah, it's a, it's a major factor in, in everything we do is how we dress. Yeah. I think, and I know just from personal experience, you're very well versed in that. Uh, you may be underselling yourself, but you know, understanding about evaporation and insensible perspiration and layering and, yeah, there really is a lot you can do. And as you say, particularly with these modern garments, of course, now they're getting into sort of nanotechnology and yeah, that, that gets pretty sophisticated, but you certainly can do things to protect yourself and prevent from, and again, I, I've done stupid things before, you know, you, you learn, you know, wearing cotton shirt, you know, and all of a sudden a big front comes in, you're soaked and, you know, that's just not a place you want to be. Uh, the other a couple other items that, you know, people commonly think about in survival in terms of skills, maybe you can speak to one of them is, is fire. And I know a lot of people think, Oh, I can start a fire, but I tell you what, when you get out there and if the conditions aren't right, you know, it can be very challenging. And that's such a crucial thing, both in terms of just maintaining body heat, but it's also psychologically very important. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tell my students that if there was one skill that could really um, save your life more than almost any other skill, other than just being prepared in general, I would say fire is the number one skill. Um, because, well, you know, when you look at how people actually die in the wilderness, um, I'd say a lot of people surprisingly die from slipping and falling. That's probably like the number one way people die. But as far as like practical every day, you know, how are you like... Like if, if I was to ask you, what are the most miserable times you've had in the wilderness? I guarantee probably on the top three would be a time you were really, really cold and miserable. Mm. And um, the time, the, the couple times I've had, you know, near death experiences in the wilderness, it was from uh, the cold as well, you know? And so, uh, yeah, fire is a, is a major thing. And I actually just taught a lesson uh, yesterday to my students on the importance of fire. And, uh, a lot of people don't realize you need a six foot long fire to stay warm in the wilderness. You can't have a little campfire because you're, it only warm a part, like one part of your body in the rest. So you actually have to have like a, a six foot long fire. And then the amount of wood you need to, yeah. to last a night. I think, um, most, <laughs> most people Way don't underestimate you, that. Yeah, yeah. You need like a pickup truck full of, yeah. you know, a piles <laughs> uh, of wood, a whole cord um, almost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. I mean, especially if you're using like softwoods like pine or, or something, it burns a lot quicker than hardwoods. You need a lot of wood. Or if it's and, only, if it's desiccated, it just goes fast. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, let's see, what was I, what was I going to say? So yeah, stay, staying warm is, is um, well, and fire. I, yeah. just, just lighting one can be so challenging. Oh, here's what I was going to say. So I tell my students, if you have, if um, you need to practice firelighting in like the worst possible conditions. Yeah. And um, there are people who, who will try to say, you know, uh, that you, you know, you should, um, you should have an extra, you know, sleeping bag and have the cold weather clothing. Cause you might not always be able to get a fire started. And I, to that, I would say that if you can't get a fire started, you're not practicing enough. <laughs> Um, I tell my students, you need to be practicing in the worst possible conditions, you know, while it's raining or after it's rained for multiple days straight. And if you haven't failed at getting a fire started at least, you know, five, five or 10 times, which means if you haven't went out 
tried for, you know, 30 minutes to an hour to get a fire started and then failed and had to give up. If you haven't done done that at least five times, then you're not going to be ready when you really need it. So you should be practicing in, in such conditions that you can't get a fire started. And then once you can't get a fire started five to 10 times, and then eventually you overcome that, then you know, okay, now I know I can get a fire started because I failed enough times and I finally started to overcome. And so I would say that to anyone watching that if, if you think you can, um, you can get a fire in any circumstance, well, how many times have you failed at getting a fire? Um, because I had, to, I had to not be able to get a fire bef- uh, a few times before I got good enough. You know, does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I have a couple of personal experiences with that in, in the wilderness, uh, New Mexico, where it took me over an hour. I mean, one time it took me almost two hours and uh, everything was wet and, you know, there's some tricks you can do to help and finally got it going. But, and it wasn't a life or death situation, but, you know, I think about that, um, you know, if it were, it's, I'd be really nervous. I mean, uh, uh, and, and that's another thing. I think it's a good reminder. You're talking about how people, you know, don't prepare, I have a practice of I try to remind myself whenever I go in the back country, you know, yeah, chances are things going to go all right or if something did happen, you run across somebody, but you can't be guaranteed of that. And so sometimes I'll just stop and just remind myself, you know, maybe a beautiful day. I feel great. I have everything I need, but I'm back in here 30 miles. And if somehow like you mentioned slipping and falling, you know, it can change like that. And right. so I need to be prepared and keep my wits about me. And also I need to not take things for granted. One of my favorite expressions is, um, you know, in, in terms of that is don't take chances. It's okay to take calculated risks. Like I may want to go up to this peak to get this view and there's a payoff for that, but don't do stupid things. You know, like you said, leave your compass at home. You know, there's no reason for that, right? You're just taking a chance. I mean, yeah, you save a little weight, but is that really worth it? And so uh, I just try to remind myself that because you can really get sucked in and just think everything's going to go just just hunky dory. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to read a quote from my very first um, lesson on survival, the intro, uh, my introduction. Uh, I, I try to have like a, a, a relevant quote at the beginning. So the quote for my very first lesson is it might seem or sorry, it might almost seem as if with the aid of modern equipment and science, man had overcome natural hazards. But this is an illusion, the very illusion by which most amateur adventure seekers are deceived. And Absolute, so that's absolutely a true. core Christian tropes, uh, art of survival. Uh, and so, yeah, we tend to think because we live in a modern time and because, I mean, you know, you could die and literally be able to see the lights of the highway, but you just can't get there in time to do anything about it. You know, we tend to uh, forget as modern people with all of our equipment and, you know, there's, you know, you're always a phone call away from uh, ambulance and you can always just drive to the store and, uh, you know, not a lot can really go wrong here in the city uh, or, you know, in the town. But we sort of we sort of forget how vulnerable we actually are out in the backcountry. And I don't a lot of people, even people who are, you know, more self-sufficient, a lot of people forget um, how self-sufficient you truly have to be in the backcountry. I have a good friend of mine who was out at Los Sands in New Mexico and um, just went out for a day hike uh, with his girlfriend, left his shoes there walking barefoot. It's a nice day. You know, it might have been like late spring or maybe early fall. And they got lost, which a lot of people do at White Sands. And uh, we're going through and then darkness came on and 
they had no idea where they were. And I, I guess it must've been overcast. So he couldn't see the sun direction. But anyway, he, he did know roughly where a highway was walked all the way through the night. She collapsed. He had to carry her like the last mile or two. And he finally got to that road about eight o'clock in the morning. They're barefoot. And you know, it was cold at night. And about 30 minutes after somebody picked him up, it started snowing. Wow. You know? And so, I yeah. mean, it's like, these things can happen. Uh, you know, it's it happens a lot more than than we think. What what about uh Matthew? Another thing, I know you've done a lot of work on this. Can you talk a little about, and particularly in hot climates, but even in in colder temperate climates, how easy it is to get dehydrated, and what happens, and and just then also about being able to find or save water, and just some things people should be aware of. Yeah, yeah. So. Um... Yeah, I have a whole lesson on dehydration, and uh, it's, a, it's an interesting lesson where I uh, sort of trace the science of dehydration and how it, you know, happens to the body. Um, uh, so, you know, here in the desert, dehydration can happen, you know, a lot of people say you can last three days without water. Well, that's, you know, uh, it, not here in the desert. You can't last that long without water. Um, may, you know, maybe one, one day, uh, wow. you know, here in 115 uh, it can just get brutal, but I think dehydration um, a lot, a lot more than just the survival of not having water. Dehydration is a major threat, even when you have water. So one of the things I teach is that in high heat, people will dehydrate themselves, even when they have water readily available. So we call that voluntary dehydration. And the reason for that is because you don't feel thirsty until you've already lost 2% of your body weight uh, in water. Okay, so that would be uh, four pounds uh, for a two. If you're 200 pounds, then you lost 2%, you lost four pounds of water. And that's something like, that's something like two liters. Okay. And so you may, so think of like a two liter bottle, like a soda yeah. bottle. Yeah, so yeah. you, if you're a 200 pound man, you may not even feel thirsty until you've lost nearly two liters of water from your and that's body. A lot, that's a lot of water loss. That's a lot of water. And so even if you're not going to die, you know, uh, dehydration, increases your risk for frostbite. Uh, most people who get hypothermic are actually um, dehydrated to some extent, most of the time. Uh, it increases your, uh, well, obviously you get fatigued, you get exhausted, right? And it also increases your chance for uh, a heat, heat stroke or heat related injury. So it, heat exhaustion, whatever. Uh, and it, you know, it just makes your mood go down. It makes your morale go down. And so uh, being dehydrated a lot of times isn't even like a survival. A lot of times it is, but, you know, more it's just wilderness comfort. So understanding how to, you know, force yourself to drink water, even when you're not thirsty to, to offset that. Uh, but then here in the desert, there's, there's this idea. And in a lot of survival books of, you know, they always want to talk about like how to find water. Right. And uh, I think the modern man wants this, um, wants like a, you know, sort of a native, a magical native American trick to find water or like what divining would Dundee do right now? You know, yeah. what would Jeremiah Johnson do right yeah. now if they yeah. needed water? Uh, <laughs> and in reality, what I teach my students is if you're ever asking where to find water, you've already probably broken like five rules of survival to get where you are. Um, and so you can't really like, I always teach based off like the worst case scenario. So when I'm, you know, teaching survival, I'm presupposing that you're going to be in the worst possible situation ever. And so when I'm presupposing that, if you're in the worst situation here in the desert, there is no water. There is none to be found. Okay. 
there, there's this I, there's this sort of idea, especially when you don't live in the desert, that like there's always water somewhere in the desert. You just have to know where to find it. But that's just like simply not true. Um, even if you know where like a spring is, it may be dried up by the time you get there in the summer. Right. It only maybe only wet. It's only wet in the winter months. I've literally seen ponds dry up. It'd be a pond one month, two months later. It's a it's like a dry, you know, crusted hole. It's like uh, nothing. Last, last backcountry trip I did is in a desert. The spring was frozen. We were there in December. Solid frozen. Interesting. You know, we were able to. Yeah. I mean, a very high elevation. You know, but okay. we were able to break it open and, and get into it. But absolutely. I, I have two friends who are in the Gila wilderness kind of got lost and they didn't know where they were. And before that, they thought everything was OK. So their packs were heavy. They dumped half of their water. Major mistake, you know, same oh, way. And they really got into they finally got down to the river and, you know, but they paid for it. I mean, another three or four days, they really didn't feel well. So that, yeah. I think that's a great point. Uh, one other thing, too, that I know you talk about and I find really interesting because, uh, you know, you're always saying about finding water, but you talk about if you find yourself in that kind of situation, there actually is quite a bit you can do, even if you don't have water, to be able to help yourself in order to save water. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So in desert survival, because there's usually not water available, um, well, first of all, you want to always, you know, be thinking, realizing that there's not water and carrying extra water. Um, but there was a, some studies done. Uh, there's a book, actually I have it here behind me, uh, called uh, Physiology of Man in the Desert. And the fact that I even have a physical copy is somewhat of a miracle because it's out of print book. But uh, you can you can get it for free online uh, for, well, the 1% of people who would want to read it. It's it's more of a science type book. It's, it's not like a, you know, a, a real page turner by any means. But uh, so what they talk about, so it was some studies that were done in Southern California during um, World War II. Um, you know, learning about man's sort of body water needs, dehydration, desert survival. So it's really, it is science, but it's really practical as well. And so uh, basically the, the only thing you can really do if you do get into a survival situation where you don't have water is to try to conserve the water that's already in your body. So you're trying to, in the desert, that means reducing your sweat rate and reducing the other things that um, dehydrate you. So wearing long clothing uh, has actually been shown scientifically to uh, reduce your rate of dehydration. So a lot of people think you'll be hot in the desert if you wear long sleeve and pants and you may feel a little bit hotter um, sometimes, but because you have that skin covered, it, it reduces the dehydration rate. So you're actually losing less water. And then, uh, well, if I could sum it up, it's a, uh, you know, sit under a tree all day and don't move and then walk at night, which is generally a bad idea. I would never recommend walking around at night anytime because you can trip, you can poke your eye out. It's just a million things could happen. Um, I, even in the desert, I wouldn't recommend walking because you could, you know, I, I was, we went on like a night hike the other night with uh, headlamps and um, I was this close to stepping on a rattlesnake. My friend had to like put his arm back. So I don't recommend walking at night, but yeah. So when it comes to like not having water the, in the desert, the only thing you can do is, re is reduce your, your water loss. And so um, that's the only time in a desert survival situation where you could walk at night. And uh, there's a few other things I talk about reducing your, um, well, keeping yourself covered, you know, reducing your, um, even the amount of weight in your pack can, you know, increase. So 
ditch any non-essential gear that you don't really need. Uh, just take your water. And uh, yeah, a few other things we talk about. Yeah, that, that's more of a desert specific skill uh, for the most part. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So one thing that um, you don't, I think, talk a lot about or as much, and this is uh, in a lot of survival books as well, you know, mention this if people really read, but you do see on the TV shows or, you know, like you said on YouTube where it becomes about, oh, I'm going to go, you know, uh, kill a bush pig, right? You know, I'm going to eat. Can you talk a little bit about food and, you know, again, keeping in mind that we're not talking about primitive living and staying in the wilderness indefinitely you know is that something people should be focused on finding food or it's something like no hey listen you can go you know whatever it is three weeks without food it's like don't worry about that just try to get out uh yeah yes and no yes and no so um definitely you know i think most people sort of know that they know hey you can go at least three weeks without food i would argue you could probably go longer than that without food i mean you can go at least 40 days yeah. And, uh, you know, well, you know, three weeks, but because you're in the wilderness, you're doing a lot of yeah. uh, heavy work and stuff like yeah. that. But I think what a lot of people don't think about is, um, you know, even though you can you won't die, you will definitely be very miserable after one or two days without food. And one of the biggest things that I think people don't think about is um, sugar caffeine and nicotine withdrawals so most people we were just talking about before we started this like we're both kind of just laughing like how we're like addicted to caffeine and uh so a lot of people don't think about is is you know going with it oh my goodness even on one of those shows i think it was naked and afraid uh i saw someone they were like yeah i'm using this show to like help me stop smoking and they had their last cigarette on the boat about oh, to get wow. off. And they were, I think it was snake and afraid. It might've been like another one of yeah. those, but they were having, they were smoking their last cigarette right before they got off the boat. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Bad idea. Yeah. So a lot of people don't think about is in a, in a three day survival situation, right? We always assume like three days is, is the, the average, uh, two to three days is the average survival situation, you know, in the U S or even less than that. And maybe you would even say, like, get prepared for like a week. Um, well, caffeine is going to be one of your major problems. And even for a lot of people, sugar withdraws, because a lot of people eat sugar every single day and don't even think about what they would do without it and how bad that can affect your mood. And uh, and uh, but really, you know, another another thing, a couple of things I teach is that in cold weather environments, you actually do need food because, again, we're, you know, people say, oh, you know, you need um it takes you three weeks to starve to death. Well, well, you, you're probably going to freeze to death before you starve to death. Right. But the thing about freezing to death is that, um, it's directly related to how much food you're eating, right? Because the body is burning energy to keep itself warm and you have to replace that energy that it's burning. So eating food is, is actually important to prevent a hypothermia when you're in a really cold environment, your body's constantly working, shivering, and you know, to, to keep you warm and you're having a hard time, having some extra food definitely helps. And then the flip uh, reverse side to that is in hot environments, you know, uh, a lot of people don't realize that uh, depletion of salt from your body is one is oftentimes one of the um, causes of heat stroke. And so, um, you know, if you're just drinking water only without eating for a few days out in the desert, um, you can still really, uh, uh, you know, predispose yourself to getting heat stroke because of that salt. Salt is the most important electrolyte. People don't think about it like as an electrolyte, 
but it is, it, you know, it's the, it's the electrolyte you need. So, you know, food, uh, at, while you, you, you can last quite a while without starving, it is, it is good idea to have some extra food on you, some snacks, some, uh, a lot of people recommend putting sugar cubes in your survival kit. I've never done that, but a lot of people recommend. And then having like little like tea bags or, you know, something with a little extra caffeine, so uh, instant coffee packets or something like that. And those can go a long way. Um, but yeah, cold weather is the, is the main, you know, thing where you, you'll really need some extra, some fat, you know, some nice, some nice food. I think that's a really good point because if anyone who's experienced this, I mean, even around your house or something, if you've, you know, been fasting or for whatever reason, is that your mood changes and that's like, eh, I'm in a bad mood, but it's not just your mood changes. Your, your mind doesn't work as well. You're, you know, you may be, you're going to be more uh, uh, likely to have an accident. Uh, you're going to make some bad decisions. You know, you're going to make some mistakes. You're, you're going to fumble with things, you know, you may not be able to do basic chores nearly as well. I mean, it, it really, and worst case scenario, and you know, you know, this obviously is survival instructor that, you know, it can affect your motivation and well, I'm just going to, you know, whatever, something's coming in inclement weather, or, you know, you're really winding down, you know, I'm much like, well, I'm just going to sit down a while, you know, yeah. or like my uncle in the, when he was about to freeze to death, you know, he just wanted to go to sleep and he started getting this kind of warm feeling, which a lot of people say happens before you actually freeze to death. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a really good point that, um, you know, even just a little bit of food, if it helps your attitude can, can actually make a big difference because of what it does your mental faculties. Yeah. And a lot of people don't consider like what you just said is that the mood and everything. And a lot of people don't consider that that's on top of not getting a lot of sleep, uh, overexerting yourself more than you maybe ever have before the previous day. Um, you probably a little bit dehydrated already. So you may, or maybe um, if it's not cold and you're dealing with the heat, you probably got tore up by insects the night before. So it's not just, oh, I'm hungry or I'm a little cranky or I have caffeine withdrawals. It's that plus, you know, five more different environmental um, stressors that just run you down. And so that's what I talk about with it, the term exposure, which is, you know, dying from the elements. It's sometimes it's just one thing like heat stroke that got you or hypothermia, but a lot of times it's a whole spiral of events where it's like 10 different things. It's, you know, lack of sleep, overexertion, dehydration, all of those different things that spiral down and not having food uh, and being, you know, or not having caffeine or whatever is just one more, um, you know, that it's on top of a whole, a whole lot of other things. So Matthew, I think that's a good way to kind of sum up the last couple items here. And I wanted to ask you if you can speak to the psychology of survival. Again, I think this is something you do hear about in the books, obviously. Some of them put it right up front. But, you know, you talk about how important that is. And then also in the decision making about what you do, uh, because a lot of survival is about, you know, do I try to get out on my own or do I wait for someone to rescue me? So can you speak about those two things, uh, psychology and then the decision making on what to do if you find yourself in a situation like this? Sure. Yeah. So I think um, psychology is actually uh, actually overemphasized in survival. Um, and I think it's always sort of there's always like a little chapter on po having a positive mental attitude. Uh, but the point I make is that um, having a positive mental attitude is directly related to your physical well-being. Mm. So you can, you can read a chapter on having a positive mental attitude all you want, 
But if you're just completely run down, yeah, it doesn't really matter, right? And and it's sort of like like what we talked about, like nicotine withdrawals, like right, uh, you know, uh, someone who like tries to quit smoking, um, it doesn't matter if they know mentally that like, oh yeah, I'm having nicotine withdrawals, that's why I'm in a bad mood and like and you know being mean to everybody. Well, you try to tell them that and see how it works. Hey, you're just don't worry, you're just having nicotine withdrawals. They'll say, shut up, I'm I don't, you know. So it's really easy to write in your book, have a positive mental attitude, you know, make sure you're viewing things positively. It's like, well, that's really hard to do when I just fell in the creek and all my stuff got wet and I can't get a fire started and I feel like I'm about to die. You know, people don't die because they have a a bad attitude. They die because they froze to death, you know. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say that, you know, we should never talk about the psychology of survival. Um, there's actually only really a couple books on the psychology of survival. Um, one of them is by uh, John Leach. And so what he talks about, his is actually about um, disaster survival. So it's more, it's more like for first responders, for people who are like, you know, uh, not so much for wilderness survival, although there is some overlap. But a lot of it is um, when it comes to the psychology of survival, I would say the emphasis should be on people thinking it can't happen to them. So it's like psychologically, probably the number one thing that is going to kill people is not that they had a bad attitude, which I guess that does do it. But, you know, usually your bad attitude is because you're miserable and there's nothing you can do about it. But it's mostly because people thought, think it can't happen to them anyway. They're not even thinking about a survival situation. And like, uh, you know, you, you talked about at the beginning of this, how, your friend was like, hey, let's just keep hiking up this trail. Let's get to 13,000 feet. And you were like, no way, I'm going to go back to the car. Okay, so that's where psychologically you made the right decision. A lot of people would make the wrong decision and keep going because they don't even think, you know, that something bad could happen to them. So I think psychologically, the number one error people make, um, we call it cognitive dissonance for any of the, you know, psychology nerds out there where it's sort of like you see one thing happening with your eyes, but you don't acknowledge that it's like a real, a real threat. And I think, you know, that's probably where I would put the emphasis is think is, you know, knowing like someone sitting there telling you, here's how people die in the wilderness and then not taking the necessary steps to prevent that. I think that's that's a good point from instructor, because a lot of that is, I, I see both sides of it, but I see what you're saying. You don't want to put yourself in that situation and a lot of that's personality driven. And there are stories of people just unbelievable what they, you know, were willing to bear, or, you know, the old guys like, you know, Shackleton, you know, who's exploring, yeah. you know, uh, and guys up crossing the North Pole, Edmondson, these guys. But, you know, a lot of times, and everyone says this, you don't really know for sure how you're going to respond until you're in that situation. If, you know, you're one of those, and, and like you said, you may just freeze to death anyway. So, why put yourself in that position if you cannot, you know? And yeah. uh, I, I think that's a really good point. In any event, if you're in a situation like that, can you uh, talk to people about this whole idea of trying to get out on your own versus waiting for rescue? And, and what goes into that? Is there a hard and fast rule? Or does it just depend on the circumstances? Yeah. Yeah. How would you advise people? Yeah. Yeah. And really quickly with with people like Shackleton, I don't, I also don't want to say, you know, I don't want to just completely discount what people write in survival books. So I'm not saying, you know, the positive mental attitude uh, is not a good thing to talk about, but I just, just want to also place the emphasis, like there is different types of personalities and some people just have a personality where 
you're going to respond in a the completely wrong way and have a horrible attitude. And so for those types of people, you need to just have, if you have a backpack full of equipment, you can have the worst attitude in the world, but you're, you have a backpack full of equipment. So you're good. And the, and the flip side is you can have the best attitude at, of anybody and still die. And that's, mm. that's sort of the point I was trying to get at. Um, but you do have the Shackleton types where it's like, you know, you know, uh, really, you know, getting like having the discipline, it's really discipline. That's where it, it's not positive mental attitude. Mm. It's discipline, mm. it's self-control and discipline. You know, it's the people. Uh, yeah. But anyway, that's a different topic. So the question is, you know, when to when to uh, signal for rescue or when to strike out on your own and try to find your way back. Um, yeah, I think this is another place where people um, have this misconception that, you know, um, well, it's like self-rescue. Self-rescue is not really happen a whole lot in the wilderness, probably. You know, I mean, there's always survival situations that people don't report and things like that, near-death things where people got out on their own. Of course, we don't have records of that. But I think a lot of times people um, uh, don't recognize that being rescued in the wilderness is the most likely outcome to your survival situation. You know, when you get lost, when you, you know, um, I mean, there's always these, my, my wife always sends me, sends me articles about people getting rescued out of the Grand Canyon, people, you know, someone and his dog got rescued by a helicopter because they were, you know, on the verge of heat stroke. And uh, in fact, the uh, wilderness survival instructor, uh, Jesse Krebs, she has a, the uh, masterclass survival course uh, in her, and she's a SEER instructor, right? So military trained SEER instructor. She, she says that signaling for rescue is like the number one survival skill in her opinion. Uh, so it, like the, in her opinion, the number one thing you should learn first is how to signal for rescue. And so, um, and I would, you know, sort of agree that that's one of the top, you know, things people always say like shelter, water, fire, food. Those are the four. Mm. Well, that's not realistic because you didn't even add first aid, first of all. And, you know, like I said, most people in the wilderness die from slipping and falling and heart issues. Those are the two mm. top killers in the wilderness, cardiac issues, slipping and falling. So probably a real survivalist would know how to, you know, fix a sprained ankle is, is like the first thing you should, which is kind of not really how we think of survival. Um, but signaling for rescue is absolutely important. And uh, it is one of the most foundational things for survival training is, you know, telling someone where you're going to be and exactly when you plan to get back and what time to call search and rescue if you don't show up. And I have to do that every time I go out because I, you know, I could drive uh, uh, 30 minutes away, hike down the trail for 20 minutes. And if I got lost right there, I would be toast, right? Because it's not, sometimes it's over 100 degrees, uh, over 110 when I'm out filming. Uh, I mean, my camera's overheating and gets so hot. And I'm in the wilderness. I could get in the wilderness pretty quick, you know. So um, telling someone where you're going to be, because if you do get lost, which is one of the most common ways people get in survival situations in the modern day, in the Everglades, in the desert, in even in the mountains, people getting lost is probably the root cause of, of so many survival situations. And when you're lost, there's not a lot you can do if you weren't prepared, right? Uh, if you don't have any GPS to signal, anything like that. And so you're really, really, really just hoping that someone is looking for you. And even knowing that someone's looking for you, is a is a really you know psychologically 
a helpful thing is when you know someone's looking for you. So you should always, you know, signaling for rescue is, is one of, if you're lost, you don't know which direction ahead is best just to sit still and wait for someone. Hopefully you have a whistle you can like sort of blow and um, people can hear you far away. Maybe you have a, in the desert, you know, a signal mirror is a, is a really good device you can have. Um, you know, whatever it is, uh, maybe an air horn, depending on the type of, you know, region you're in, uh, whatever. And so, yeah, signaling is actually one of the main uh, things. And in a lot of areas, you can't get out. Like, for example, in a, in, if you're in a car, um, people actually uh, uh, die here in the desert because they get stuck in their car breaks down in the desert and it's, they're too far away for them to walk back. So you're really hoping that someone rescues you. So one of the major survival tenets that I, I myself follow is tell someone where you're going to be, what direction you're heading once you get to that place, you know, when you're supposed to be back. And I even tell my wife, hey, if I'm not back at this time, call search and rescue or, you know, at least come and have someone drive and see if maybe the car like broke down or something like that. Um, and I even have a GPS now of course, a signaling uh, device that I just keep off and I just turn it on. I can send a text message from anywhere in the world and it has my GPS coordinates. So I, I'm pretty safe for the most part, but I, and even though I have that GPS, I still have a map, a compass and my signaling equipment. And I tell my wife, so I I'm like covered, covered all my bases, you know? Uh, but yeah, so signaling is, is a lot more important than people recognize. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for that. That was a fantastic way to wrap here and uh, really appreciate all the information, the wealth of knowledge. And obviously that comes from uh, not only research, but experience. So it's been a pleasure and uh, hope to have you on again sometime. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Lee. It's a pleasure. Okay. All right. Take care.